Do you or someone you care for have type 2 diabetes? Locally, the number of people living with adult onset or type 2 diabetes can be anywhere from 5 to 10% of the population or higher, depending on where you live and what you're eating. On this episode of CTSI Discovery Radio, find out how a balanced diet and a few other tips can be some of the best tools you have for managing your type 2 diabetes. That's next. Good day, Southeast of Wisconsin. You're listening to CTSI Discovery Radio, and I'm David Todd, your host for the next half an hour. On this program, we'll be talking about type 2 diabetes and a three-year research study that just concluded at the end of 2014. Plus, we'll welcome Dr. Harry Greenberg from Stanford University and Jacqueline Frederick from Blood Center of Wisconsin to talk about team science and how being a member of the CTSI has its benefits. First though, the CTSI is an eight-member consortium made up of the Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, UW-Milwaukee, the Medical College of Wisconsin, plus Children's Hospital, Freighter Hospital, the VA, and Blood Center of Wisconsin. The goal is to work together, collaborating across institutions to discover new health treatments, drugs or interventions much faster, better and more cost-effectively than in the past. And it's working. I recently sat down with the Executive Director of Blood Center of Wisconsin, Jacqueline Frederick, to see how they see themselves as part of the CTSI. Jackie, can you tell me um, how the Blood Center of Wisconsin works with inside an eight-member consortium and what it brings to your organization? Blood Center of Wisconsin was formed in 1947, and one of the pillars of Blood Center is innovation. So we pride ourselves in being probably one of the most innovative blood centers in our country. So innovation to us is all about partnerships, broad expertise, um, and great depth, and the ability to bring people from many different perspectives, many different academic backgrounds, together to innovatively solve the problems of populations and people in our community and certainly first and foremost patients. So by bringing it together eight very diverse organizations but with a common set of values around patient and our Milwaukee community but also our responsibility that it is a global community, all of us serve because we all are academically based institutions. It's very powerful as a blood center to have the partners we have to solve the problems we specialize in. And do your partners help you through um, bringing research projects to you or supporting you with um, services or or, uh, facilities? So one of the greatest advantages of CTSI is what we call the pilot project uh, program. So it requires uh, faculty from multiple institutions within CTSI to come together around proposed research projects. And we have been involved in several of those and, and are now, and it forces us to not just look at the science, for instance, but to have a physician with us that looks at the medicine, or to have a biomedical engineer or a IT informatics expert at our beck and call, so to speak. So it allows us to more fully address problems that are of interest to us. 
that would be one great example. Thank you so much for your time, Jackie. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, And it really is all about humankind and and helping the people of our community. And our community uh, is the world. And that's what CTSI is all about. Thanks again. CTSI of Southeast Wisconsin is only one of 62 Clinical and Translational Science Awards in the nation. And not all CTSAs are the same. That's why we've asked Dr. Harry Greenberg from Stanford University to share his thoughts. Good morning, Dr. Greenberg. Can you tell us how you are using your award to affect change around Stanford? At Stanford, our CTSA has really been transformative. And I think um, what many people have said about CTSAs is that if you've seen one CTSA, you've seen one CTSA. The Stanford culture, for, for a very long time, Stanford and Stanford School of Medicine has been an extremely research-intensive medical school with a heavy focus on basic research, and actually I would say a heavy focus on the most basic research. The CTSA has helped us um, change the culture to some level to realize that the full power of basic discovery isn't realized until some of those discoveries, the discoveries that are useful, can be translated into clinical medicine. And the CTSA and the funding that it has given us has enabled that. So one, it has helped us expand our um, educational focus on giving young people the tools to associate basic discovery with um, clinical outcomes or prevention. Um, Two, Stanford has always been a place where there has been an emphasis on innovation and now we have a very active and growing focus on innovation in the clinical and translational research arena. We have always had at Stanford a a sizable community that is actually interested in what I might call population health. That is, how does one, rather than personalize individual medicine, how does one improve um, the health of populations? And the CTSA has enabled us to have resources to bring that community together in a more focused way. Well, that's excellent. Um, I love, too, that you've called your CTSA spectrum, um, standing for the Stanford Center for Clinical and Translational Research and Education. The CTSAs, as you know, are supposed to cover the spectrum of research. And we thought that spectrum was a nice word that embodied that. Um, It also is a nice visual. Sounds very innovative, Dr. Greenberg. Thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. 29 million Americans have diabetes, both type 1 and type 2. And where they both can be genetic, type 2 diabetes can strike because of your lifestyle. Joining us on the phone is Dr. Ann Albright, Director, Division of Diabetes Translation at the Centers for Disease Control. Dr. Albright, do me a favor. Talk to me about the state of diabetes as it is today in the United States. I know that you've got a very long history with this disease, not only with the CDC, but also with the state of California, with the Surgeon General. So this really has kind of been a a career focus for you. Um, Where do we stand right now? Well, there's certainly a significantly huge problem of uh, diabetes in our country, actually around the world. We now have uh, over 29 million people with diabetes. That's 
type 1 and type 2, and there are a few other forms of diabetes that are included in that number. But that's actually 9.3% of the U.S. population. So lots of people with diabetes, and over the last couple of decades, we've been seeing a significant increase in the new cases of diabetes. So bottom line, diabetes is a very significant health problem for our country. Yeah, and you mentioned that yeah, we've been seeing incidences of an increase. Any, any indicators pointing to uh, what's causing the, the increase? I know it's been fairly dramatic. Well, there... Uh, it, as we mentioned, there are a few different kinds of diabetes. We tend to talk about them as two major forms, type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. But there is also gestational diabetes that does occur when a woman is pregnant. The vast majority of cases of diabetes are type 2 about 90 to 95% of the cases. So why the number of people with diabetes is increasing, when you look at type 2 diabetes, it's a combination. Uh, type 2 diabetes results because of genetic factors that predispose people to this disease, and added to that are lifestyle factors. If you are not being very physically active, if you are eating more calories than needed and you get increased body weight, those factors all add to your likelihood of getting type 2 diabetes. There's a whole set of risk factors that we hope people will learn more about. As you age, your risk for type 2 diabetes goes up. As you become sedentary or you are sedentary, you become more overweight. If you're a member of a high-risk ethnic group, African-American, Hispanic, Latino, some Asian, Pacific Islanders, American Indians, those populations all carry a greater risk for type 2 diabetes. If you are a woman who had gestational diabetes, you are at very high risk for developing type 2 diabetes later in life. So there are, if you have a family history, so there is this set of risk factors. Many of those things are uh, changing, particularly our sedentary lifestyle and the increase in body weight. Those have been main drivers for the increase in type 2 diabetes. I mean, those things we can change. That's right, and that's the important thing to look at because some of those things that I just named... Your family history, can't change that. Your right. age, you can't change that. Um, those things, you're absolutely right. Those are not changeable. But things like your lifestyle, um, how physically active you are, um, paying attention to your uh, food intake, not easy. It's certainly not easy for everybody to do that. But, but those are things that can and should be done. Excellent. Uh, Dr. Albright, thank you so much for your time today. Excellent information, and um, I'm sure that our listeners will uh, gain so much from what you've told us today. Great. I really appreciate being here, and I think the one message I would leave with uh, your listeners is type 2 diabetes can be prevented, and it's very important for people to um, better understand those changes in lifestyle. Being physically active, getting about 150 minutes of physical activity during the week, losing a modest amount of body weight, those things are going to go a long way in preventing type 2 diabetes. Sounds great. Thank you, Dr. Albright. Those are the stats nationally. Here in Southeast Wisconsin, those numbers can be very different. Our next guest is a principal investigator on a three-year study of adults with type 2 diabetes. The study just concluded in December with some very positive results. Uh, Dr. Nelson, can you tell me how this study came to you? It's a good question, David. Um, 
I think anything that we do, whether it be in research or education, is um, is better done in partnership. And, and an important tenet of what we do through our work here is to work with partners, uh, whether it be through research or education. And in this case, I've been partners with ProHealth and the Community Health Resource Center uh, for several years. And they approached me three years ago about this idea around navigation of patients uh, with type 2 diabetes and low-income patients, and more importantly, about the things that we might do within the community that might impact some change in this area. So I thought it was a, a very viable option for some research that needs to be done. And you mentioned that um, you were working with uh, ProHealth as one of your community partners. Um, are there other partners on this study and on this project? Yes, this project has numerous partners, and sometimes it's easy to forget or take for granted uh, how many that are, are willing to work with on us with us. In addition to ProHealth, uh, the Food Pantry of Waukesha County, uh, the Lake Air Free Clinic, uh, Medical Eye Associates, Mount Mary University, uh, New Genesis Farms, uh, University of Wisconsin Cooperative Extension, uh, and just has there have been numerous people that have stepped forward, uh, including some national organizations like the National Kidney Foundation that have really taken an interest in this project. And can you tell me, how do participants, how are they involved in this project? What do they do? Participants are a very important part of this project because one of the things that we wanted to do with these individuals who have been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, these are individuals prior to the Affordable Care Act coming on board, they didn't have insurance. Uh, and naturally, these are low-income individuals as well. Many of the people who have low income um, also have chronic illnesses like diabetes. And so um, these individuals came to us through uh, various, through the, through the Waukesha County Food Pantry, through the Salvation Army, which is one of our, uh, our partners. And they were identified by nurse navigators who do outreach within the community, which is an important component. So not only are the individuals part of this project so we can improve their diabetes, but they also serve a role for us to come to us to tell we're, how we're doing on the project, to make sure that we're doing this in a culturally appropriate manner and making sure that things are making that make sense to us will make sense to them as well. So there's a real uh, bi-directional communication with the community that you're engaging, correct? That's really important because many times when we, when we talk about research and we do research, we speak a language. We speak a language of, of, that are of our own, and we take that for granted. When we work with others, we not only want to, to teach them about how they might manage their chronic illness like diabetes, but it's also equally important for us to learn from the community, to learn from those individuals about how we might better do our work together. So tell me why people should participate in this kind of research. What is the benefit that's going to be seen in the community? That is a really good question, David. And, and research is important not only for discovering new ideas and to answer questions through different methods, but it's also for a way to, to learn about, and in this case, chronic illness and, and the disparities that exist 
around diseases have a component that the community context, if you will. And so in this case, it's we can learn as researchers about that community context, uh, especially for those individuals who are low income, who go to food pantries. And there's a lot to be learned from those from the individuals that are in those types of circumstances. I know the project, the formal project, actually wrapped up at the end of 2014. And we're now in the process of going through the results. What would a good outcome be for the community? Yeah, uh, again, a good question. And I think there are results, the, the results that were, the preliminary results that we're finding in the project did end at the end of December. Um, and we're analyzing our results now. There are a couple levels of success for this project. One is that these individuals have a better working knowledge of their diabetes. And so far, it's, it's panning out that individuals have gained new knowledge around their diabetes for example they know they now they know over the course of a 15 week trial in which they participated with the nurse navigators they know the importance of carbohydrates they've learned the importance of exercise they know the importance for example of checking their feet on a regular basis and they've actually demonstrated to us that they're doing this more regularly and also with this when we talk about success david i think it's important to recognize that not only do we want to think about this at the individual level but we want to talk about this at the community level. For example, the Waukesha County Food Pantry is doing their business a little bit differently about the types of foods that they, that they keep on the pantry, the types of foods that they purchase. And more importantly, they're educating the public about what it means to donate foods that can be helpful for people with, not only with chronic diseases, but for all of us by asking people to donate foods that has lower content sugar, low lower salt content, more things that have whole grains, for example. Thank you, doctor. That's excellent information. And it sounds like we've got a much healthier community in Waukesha now. Thanks so much for the time today. I think this is an exciting opportunity, and, and I would be remiss if I didn't thank our, our funder. In this particular case, this project was funded through a grant by the Healthier Wisconsin Partnership Program, and so we want to thank them so very much and for the CTSI of Southeast Wisconsin, uh, who has also sponsored much of the work that we do here at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Thank you. Right after this short break, we'll tell you why an apple a day, well, it's not just a saying. We'll be right back. One of the things we heard from participants of this type 2 diabetes study was how confusing choosing the right foods can be. So we turned to CTSI by nutritionist Andrea Moosreiner for some tips. Andrea, can you tell me um, what types of food choices are better for diabetics to be making um, when they go to the store or when they go to the food pantry or even when they go out to eat? Overall, when you when you find out you have diabetes and you you have to first understand uh, what you need to look for. Um, and it's a lot of focus is on carbohydrates as far as what what is a carbohydrate versus a protein and a fat, um, but also what type of carbohydrate are you consuming and what type of carbohydrate do you want to be looking for? We have simple carbs and complex carbs. And of course, the the simple carbohydrates, get rapidly absorbed and affect our blood sugar um, much differently than complex carbohydrates. 
And those are the carbohydrates that are like in breads and rice and all the all the white stuff that we hear that we're supposed to stay away from, correct? Yeah, you couldn't lump all breads, pasta, and rice in the same category. They're all a carbohydrate, but white rice is going to affect our blood glucose very different from wild rice. Um, and and taking it a step farther, boxed wild rice is going to be very different from consuming a bulk bin wild rice or a bagged wild rice. As the study has been going on over the past three years, and we've been looking at the kind of food choices people with type 2 diabetes are making, um, what are the kinds of foods that you would encourage people to eat more of as opposed to less of? All-around balanced diet. I mean, I, of course, watching your carbohydrates is important, but it's even more important making sure that your meals are balanced, that you're getting a healthy portion of protein, uh, and that protein is varied by plant protein and animal protein, and also uh, a healthy portion of fat. We've been a, a fat phobia nation for so long. It's important that you're receiving mono and polyunsaturated fats as well as looking for your complex carbohydrates. What gets tricky is the marketing in the grocery stores. Trends have, have led companies to market their foods being high in fiber and having less sugar, less simple sugar, no high fructose corn syrup. Um, but when you really get into the nutrition labels and you start reading the ingredients, you find that the ingredients really aren't all that impressive. The marketing has gotten very clever. So in educating people with type 2 diabetes about what to eat, they really need to be reading those labels, correct? Yes, uh, they need to look at what types of fat are in there because many labels are now including uh, whether it has monounsaturated or polyunsaturated fats. Uh, they're breaking down the carbohydrates as with fiber and sugar. Um, so honing in on that sugar, not necessarily the carbohydrate amount, and then also keep reading further down and looking at the ingredients. A bread product often says made with whole grains, but you look and you read the ingredients and the whole grains is maybe the sixth or seventh ingredient listed where the first ingredient is your standard processed white flour. So Andrea, uh, when you're working with um, people with type 2 diabetes, what's their biggest question about food choices? What's the one thing that confuses them most? Uh, many often ask about fruit. Uh, we know that fruit is healthy. It contains a lot of healthy vitamins and minerals, uh, but it, they know that it is something that they have to monitor, but they don't understand why. Uh, with, with fruit, it, it's, it's, our, it's nature's natural source of fructose, which is a simple sugar, gets rapidly absorbed. Uh, however, when you eat whole fruit, uh, it's, it's typically paired with fiber. Mother Nature always pairs fruit with fiber. Um, and so that fiber helps slow down that, that simple sugar absorption so you don't get spikes in your blood glucose. Uh, however, when we start processing fruit and we have our fruit products like fruit juice, it pops up everywhere. When it comes to fruits, uh, if you're diabetic, you, you, you have to watch your overall intake, but you're much better off choosing whole fruits with the fiber. Thank you, Andrea. Those are great tips for people to consider when they're uh, purchasing food for themselves. And we should also mention that um, everybody should consult their doctor before changing their diet. Thanks so much, Andrea. Yeah, thank you. 
That's all good information in theory, but what happens when your food choices are limited? Karen Treadwell, the executive director of the food pantry of Waukesha County, invited us to see the difference the study has made for their clients and also on the shelves of their food pantry. So Karen, as we're back here in the actual pantry and we're looking at the foods that are on the shelves, can you tell me um, what kinds of foods, uh, uh, what types of foods you're buying now after the study has completed? Yes, much of our, our stock is donated, but we do purchase uh, foods. We used to spend an awful lot of money on macaroni and cheese, and thankfully we don't have to do that as much now. Um, we are using some of our, our uh, budget to purchase brown rice, white rice, uh, both dried and canned legumes and beans and things of that nature. Um, we don't buy a lot of fresh produce because thankfully that's been donated through some of our commercial donors and that, that really helps us use some of the monetary um, um, resources for lean meats, whole grain cereals um, and other things that really positively impact the diets of our clients. So folks in Waukesha County can come to the food pantry and get fresh meat and fresh produce as well? Yes. If um, an economically eligible person living in Waukesha County comes to the food pantry, they can register to receive services from us. And in addition to some of the non-perishables, they will get fresh milk, fresh eggs, frozen meat, fresh fruits and vegetables, and a variety of other options that will help make their diets complete. And do they select their own food, Karen, or do you guys suggest to them what kind of foods they should have? Uh, we're very fortunate in that we have both the community support and the space to be a full client service or client choice um, food pantry, which is somewhat unusual. So while our foods are displayed in a manner that kind of optimizes the fresh and healthy options for our clients, they do select everything that will meet their um family needs and their their own personal tastes as well as cultural needs as much as possible. Um, we sure do have some room for the, the kind of snacky things and the treats, but that comes further down the selection line so that they're um, selecting all the healthier options first. So when somebody does come into the food pantry, how do you know that they're diabetic? Is that something that they self-report or do you ask that when they're um, registering? Um, every client in the household will go through a registration interview and during that process we'll talk to them about their special needs whether there's somebody in the family who has diabetes or other um, health care conditions that will require special foods. And is there a way that you've been getting that message out about healthier food donations and, and better food donations? We've been very fortunate. We have a newsletter that goes to more than 5,000 households and so we've been able to print literature in our newsletter articles about the healthier food options that we're looking for. We also do a big eight to donate for our food donors um, when they're doing a food drive. And so we've been able to hand that out for the food drives or at some of the grocery stores where there are barrels that people can put their donations into. So there are some different venues. Um, we also post it on our Facebook page and our website as well. Have you noticed changes in the way that people are um, selecting food or in the health of your clientele? Well, we aren't in a position to necessarily know a lot about the 
day-to-day health improvements um, with each and every client. Anecdotally, people have said to us how they feel that they're they're physically and emotionally feeling healthier. And in some cases, some have reported back to us that their doctors are really pleased by what their blood levels are coming in, um, in as and different things like that. So we're hearing from our clients that they're very happy with the increased healthy food selection. And it's been great to watch as our clients are selecting their food to see the excitement about some of those nice options that are on the on the shelves for them to pick from. Well, that has to be very fulfilling for you to see people coming in, making good food choices, being happy with the food choices, and to have them self-report to you that they're feeling better. You know, it, it's, it is a very fulfilling job altogether, but I think one of the things that's really hit home for me is that what we do here is a little bit of social justice. And people really deserve to be healthy and happy and if one way that that can happen is through the food that we provide I think it's fantastic and it's really phenomenal to have a generous community that supports us in in our mission. As we walked back to her office Karen also shared with me an added bonus of participating in this study. Um, So Karen the project has uh, wrapped up it's been three years now Um, what's come out of the project other than healthier food choices for people with type 2 diabetes? You know, we have developed these amazing relationships, um, relationships that we probably wouldn't have gleaned otherwise um, with the medical college, with the local healthcare provider, ProHealth, um, UW Extension, we've already had a relationship with, but it's been deepened and strengthened through this process, as has a relationship with the Mount Mary Dietetics um, Program. So these relationships we know will continue beyond the scope of the grant, and we're already looking at ways that we can collaborate and cooperate in the future to um, learn more about each other's programming, for sure, but ultimately to improve the lives of the people that we're all striving to assist, and those are people living in community, um, whether they are in poverty or whether they're they're people who may have other um, um, challenges with health, we're working together to address those needs. And thank you, Karen. You pretty much paraphrase the mission of a CTSI, is to work in collaboration and partnership with the community. So thank you for that. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I get a sugar rush, thinking of you too much. I get a sugar rush, thinking of you too much. And one last item. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month, so make sure to mark your calendar and join us next month. Until then, CTSI Discovery Radio is produced by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The show is engineered by Tom Crawford, with special thanks to Maureen Mack, Sandy Everts, and Drs. Herman Beats, Carlos De La Pena, and Reza Shakir. Sure.